Welcome to The Productivity Show, the Asian efficiency podcast dedicated to helping you make the most of your time, attention, energy, and focus. This episode is all about how you can make better decisions. Brooks and I talk about the real problem with saying yes to the wrong things, share how you can say no without ruining your relationships, and share a framework that you can use when trying to make tough decisions like whether or not to take that other job or deciding on a career path. If you have trouble saying no to things or find yourself stressed out because you're overcommitted and don't have time for the things that are really important to you, then you don't want to miss this episode. You can find links to everything that we share in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 155. And now, on with the show. All right, so today we're going to be talking about how you can make better decisions, specifically how to say no and when to say yes. And I'm really excited about this topic. With me for today's recording is Brooks Duncan. So how are you doing today, Brooks? I'm excellent. I think this is going to be one of those episodes where I become a cautionary tale. So I'm really looking forward to this. Maybe you can talk me through some things by the time we get to the end. <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of have an unfair advantage, I guess, uh, for this topic, which originally came from the dojo. I believe it was John who posed this topic uh, a while back on how to make better decisions. And it kind of is a tag along to the the one that we recorded about cognitive biases. We had some people saying it'd be great to see how that played out. And uh, to be honest, I really don't know how specifically you can overcome those exact biases, but we are going to talk about some of them and how they can actually lead you to making poor decisions. And then we're going to share a framework that you can use, actually a couple different frameworks <laughs> that you can use to make uh, make better decisions. Now, the content for this outline, uh, I stole from a couple of books that I read recently that really influenced my view on this topic, which is Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath and The Power of a Positive No by William Urey. Now, have you read either of these books, uh, Brooks? I have not read either of them. Decisive is on my list to read. So, and I've actually bought it. Uh, the Power of Positive No, I actually wasn't familiar with. So, uh, I'm definitely going to be picking that one after after recording this too. Yeah, Decisive was a great book. Uh, Power of Positive No was one that Joe Bielig made me read for Bookworm, <laughs> but I'm really glad that really glad that I did. Uh, so, let's kind of start here by talking about the the problem. All right, so the problem and the pain point for a lot of people, especially people in the dojo, I think, as I'm observing a lot of the conversations that are happening, happening there is that people, and I'm going to lump myself in this camp as well. So I, please don't take this as me projecting this on our dojo members. This is humans in general, I think, uh, tend to say yes to things that we shouldn't be doing. Would you say that's fair? I would say that's fair. And yeah, definitely don't, when we talk about this stuff, don't, uh, don't have the mindset that we figured it all out and we're telling you what to do. We all suffer from all of these. Yeah, like we were talking about when we were doing the the cognitive biases episode, uh, we were recording that in front of the the dojo in the, in the Slack channel was uh, Nate Lowry, and so the Slack team is one of the things that you get with the dojo where you can actually chime in and influence the conversation. And Nate was commenting on a lot of the cognitive biases that we were talking about, and I felt like he understood them a lot better than we did. <laughs> so I told him today when I saw him in Slack that uh, I felt a little bit like a poser <laughs> because he's he obviously has been studying this stuff. But uh, yeah, this is essentially what we're learning and what we're distilling through our own experience. So not professing to be experts, but hopefully this will be helpful. Absolutely. Uh, I mentioned before the problems that people say yes to the things that sh they shouldn't be doing. Notice I did not say that people say yes too often, even though that's how it manifests a lot of times, I think, is people think that they're overcommitted or they feel overcommitted. They feel stretched thin. But I think the real source of that is that they've said yes to the things that they really shouldn't be doing. And so they've got a long list of things that they want to be doing that they actually should be doing the things that are important but aren't necessarily urgent, but they can never get to them. And so what I want to look at here is the reasons why we say yes to the things that we shouldn't be doing, because I think that we've all got the same 24 hours in the day. The, the net result of the number of things that you said yes to for the person who is just completely in the zone and living their ideal life, they've achieved their ideal future, and the person who just feels stressed out all the time and not doesn't have enough time to do the things that they actually want to do isn't going to be the number of things that they've said yes to. 
Yeah, this is something we really found when we were doing interviews for our Finishers Fastlane product. We did a bunch of interviews for people and a lot of times people struggled because they had things on their plate and it wasn't even necessarily things they didn't want to be doing. Sometimes that was the case, but a lot of times it was things that they they just knew they shouldn't be doing. And, and like you said, they couldn't get to the the important stuff that actually takes them to their goals. So yeah, that's it. this is something we've really heard from the AE community for sure. Yeah, and I, I think it's not even necessarily the things that you don't want to be doing. I think that there are a lot of things that are good, but they're not the best. And somebody once told me that good is the enemy <laughs> of the best because you settle for the things that are good. Oh, this is something good. I should be doing this. But if you're not doing the best thing, you're always going to feel that friction. You're always going to feel like you're not doing the right things. Yeah. And I, I really went through this when I was first starting my online business. And I had talked about that in previous episodes of the podcast as well. And when you're looking into doing something like, say, starting an online business, there is a million things you can be doing. And when you read forums and user groups, there is a million things that people feel like they should be doing or they could be doing. And they they almost get into paralysis because there's so many things that people are telling them to do that people are hearing, they hear that you should do. Um, they never actually move forward very much. Yeah. Another phrase or another way to say that I, I think would be paralysis by analysis where you just are evaluating so many options that you just physically cannot make a, a choice, but we're, we're going to get to that. Uh, in a little bit. Uh, The quote I have here next regarding people saying yes to things that they shouldn't be doing uh, actually comes from that Power of a Positive Notebook by William Murray. He says that every important yes requires a thousand no's. And so this is why I say that the the net result of the number of things that you've said yes to probably isn't that different. Uh, But if you don't know how to say no, you're going to say yes to to the first thing that shows up. And it may not be the best thing. And really what William Murray is saying here is that you've got to say no a thousand times sometimes before you get that one thing that is the best option for you. And that's the thing that you say yes to. And this is important because when it comes to what you say yes and what you say no to, you are the one who is responsible for taking care of your own domain. You have to protect what is important to you. Yeah, I uh, I remember reading this one time. Uh, a quote by Derek Sivers. And basically what he was saying is if you're evaluating something to do, it sh- you should be thinking to yourself, is this a hell yes? Sorry for the language or, or just a, a, a little bit of a yes or a no. And if it's not in that first category, probably it's not something you should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Katie's talking about in, in the chat here that you have to base your choices on what moves you forward, not others. Absolutely. But people pleasing and FOMO kill many people's decision making. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And that is where this whole formula for a positive no comes into play, because this is something that I picked up again from the power of a positive power of a positive no, which allows you to respect your 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 rights, your uh, your priorities and also allows you to not ruin the relationships because that's going kind of out of order here, but that's really the the root cause of exactly what Katie is talking about. There's this tension that's caused from exercising the power, your ability to say no versus tending to the relationship, whether that is a spouse, whether that is a good friend, whether that is your boss. Okay. And it's going to, it's going to look a little bit different in each one of those scenarios, but Essentially, I think that it can be summed up as exactly that, tending to the relationship. So there's this fine line that you have to walk between these two things. And the formula here, which I absolutely love, this is the the biggest thing I got from this book. The formula for a positive no is yes with an exclamation point, no with a period, and then yes with a question mark. Okay, so what this looks like is you say yes with the exclamation point. That is saying yes to yourself. It is saying that, my needs, my desires, my wants, those are important. And I'm going to put those first. And then the no with the period, that is saying no to the request, which is infringing upon those, those rights. They're overstepping the boundary that you want to create. Okay. But the next part here is very important. The yes with the question mark, this is where you propose a compromise. And this is where I'll just pick on myself. This is where <laughs> I've missed it a lot in the past. <laughs> is I've established the boundaries and I've said no, but I've said no poorly. And when you say no poorly, that's when you damage the relationship 
And I've definitely damaged some relationships because I have not said no the right way. And the way to say no correctly is to come back by proposing that compromise because what that allows you to do is still respect your uh, your needs, your desires, your wants, but but still be able to, to work with the other person and accommodate what they want you to do because they're not just asking you to do this because you're someone who's going to accomplish a task. Like there's, there's a, there's a dynamic here with the relationship that, that is a give and take. And, and there's uh there's the analogy in Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people of the emotional bank account where you're making either withdrawals or you're making deposits. Okay. So you can say no without making the withdrawal. And I think that's really important. Yeah. We, we feel sometimes that we, we want to be helpful. Like most people want to be helpful. So we feel like we want to be helpful. And in order to be helpful, we have to say yes. But really, you can still be helpful and say no. Really, that person, what that person really wants is a solution. So you can say no to a request, but still help them find a solution some other way. So I'm really glad you I'm really glad you brought up this formula because this is a great way of putting it. Yeah, and this is something that uh, was actually inspired by the other book, Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath, because many people view this as either yes or no. So I either have to accommodate the other person or I have to say no and the relationship is going to be damaged. But in the Decisive book by Chip and Dan Heath, one of the things they talk about is you need to, you need to be able to look for alternative options where it's not just picking this thing or that thing, there are other options on the table. And so that's what I think that this formula for a positive no does. Now let's go back to the tension that's caused from the exercising power to say no versus tending to the relationship. In the book, The Power of a Positive No, there are three typical responses here. Okay, so there's accommodate, and that's where you say yes when you don't want to or when you shouldn't. You can attack, and that's when you say no poorly. Or you can avoid it and you don't say anything. That one in particular just really gets my blood boiling. <laughs> but a positive no is actually a combination of both accommodate and attack. So you're saying no, not poorly. You're saying no in a way that you're still respecting the boundaries that you've established, but you're also looking for a way that you can accommodate the other person in a way that is a win-win. Yeah, uh, a member of the dojo, I don't know if this person would want me saying uh, the name, but in this case, but uh, they're saying their husband's no often sounds like a yes and leads to a lot of confusion and hurt feelings. And that t- totally ties in with what you're talking about. A lot of times we, we it's, it's kind of getting into that avoidance, uh, avoidance category and not a, a positive no, because you say no, but you, you don't want a hard feeling. So you say it kind of leaving the door open to a yes. And then it gets into this horrible gray area where nobody really knows where they stand and it's just going to cause problems later. Exactly. And (laughs) the other thing here next, which uh, I think is really important because I've noticed this myself, uh, again, from the book, The Power of a Positive No, the most powerful intentions are for, not against. And so when somebody says, hey, I want you to do this thing for me, in the past, uh, if I'm honest with myself, I've attacked, I've said no poorly. What that does when I say no poorly is it creates negative emotions. And it's not as, and I feel this internal turmoil, I guess, where I feel like, oh, maybe I should have actually said yes. Uh, and that is why you have to end on a yes, because the the yes is the the intention for. It's the intention for yourself, but it's also the intention for the other person and figuring out a way that we can make this a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so your no is not a wall. Again, this is from the book. It is a living boundary which protects what is important. And I say living boundary because I think that it can change shapes. It can move. And that is really important because if you're thinking of like, a boundary. Typically, you think of like one of those uh, one of those big stone walls that they would put around a castle. Okay, that's not going anywhere. And then you've got somebody who says that little corner of the castle around where you built that wall. That's that's actually mine. Like that that wall is not going to be moving anywhere. There's going to be a conflict there. There's there's going to be a battle. <laughs> But when you have the ability to move your wall, you can say, oh, okay, yeah, well, I'll just take this other area over here then. And I think that when you use this power of a positive no formula, what you end up is really uh, like putting together the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle where some of them are very irregularly shaped. But the end result is that you get a very complete picture where you can respect your your needs, your desires, your wants, and you can uh, accommodate other people and tend to the relationship. 
I like the concept of a living boundary too, because sometimes we forget that, you know, maybe we have a, a wall, so to speak, but remember your boundary, which is a better way of putting it is bumping up against <laughs> the boundaries of the other people too. So it's got to, you know, we've all got to be working on this stuff together and having it as a, a phrase as a living boundary kind of demonstrates that that these boundaries are are up against each other and what happens with your boundary affects what's happening with the other people's. So I really like the way that they put that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that there's another very important distinction here along the same lines that when you are saying no and you're respecting other people's boundaries, you have to respect the other person. And this can be hard sometimes, especially in a work scenario. If your boss comes and just says, I need you to have this done by Friday. And, uh, that's, that's all the, the context that you get. And he, you know, then, then, then they leave your office. It can be very easy to be upset because they maybe derailed your entire week and they don't even care. It looks like, you know, but, uh, this is very important that you have to respect the other person when you say no to things. And the key here, this was one of my, my big takeaways from reading this book was that when you say, uh, when you give respect to the other person, you do it because of who you are not because of who they are. So it doesn't matter if it is somebody who walked up to you off the street and asked you for a million dollars, you have to show them respect, not because of, of who they are, because you don't know who they are. You have no reference with this person. There's no relationship really there. But the key is to show the respect because of your character and your integrity. I think that's very, very important. Yeah, that's great. And also, you also have to respect the person and think about and respect what is behind their ask? Like most times if somebody's coming up to you with a request, they're not just doing it because they have nothing better to do, right? There's, they have, just like you have your reasons for saying no, uh, they have their reasons that they are making this ask. So even if you still have to say no, that's, you know, that's totally fine. That's what we're talking about. But you have to respect that this is coming from somewhere for them. So it goes back to that uh, respecting and helping come up with a solution. If, if you're just saying no, because you, because you want no, and you're not thinking of what's behind theirs, then that's just going to cause problems. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So we've, we've talked a, a little bit about how you can say no, but really the key here to saying no is, is saying yes to, to the right things like we talked about. So this is not actually from the book. This is something I came up with, but I was thinking about, so what are the, what are the times that you should actually say yes? And I identified three of them here. I'm sure there's probably, probably more, but uh, these are the three I could think of off the top of my head. So when the thing is in line with your core values and it's the best thing that you can do right now, then that is going to be a time when you should say yes. And then Brooks, you have an example here for the second one. So I'll let you take this one. Right. Uh, so the second one, which I'm really glad that you said this because a lot of the, including one of the things I said, a lot, a lot of the advice that you hear from people is, oh, you know, you should, you should, if it's not, uh, if it's not something that resonates with you, you know, you should say no. Um, but there are times, like you said, that, that it probably could be a good idea to say yes. And it may even be times when it's not something that you even necessarily want to do. So the the thing you had here on the list, which I totally agree with, is one time you want to say yes is when the thing will lead you to your ideal future and will help develop career capital. And this is such a big thing that I think a lot of a lot of people new to to the workforce don't really grasp that not not every task is going to be amazing and awesome uh, but if it's something that will lead you down that path and help to develop that career capital it can be worth doing so the example that sprung to mind when i was reading this is uh, one of my very first jobs was an accounting clerk level one in uh, what's called a crown corporation here where i live in british columbia and basically, an accounting clerk level one does very little accounting, but does a lot of uh, filing and trying to find where things don't balance in a huge stack of paper uh, and that sort of thing. And none of it was particularly fun jobs, obviously. But uh, I remember one time one of my one of my performance reviews, uh, my bosses uh, were talking to me, and they said one of the things they really appreciated about me is that I take these crap jobs for lack of a better word and approach them with the same kind of 
enthusiasm and attention to detail and excellence that I would an exciting job. And that sort of thing helped me later as I got different promotions and kind of jumped over over people and stuff like that uh, in my career is that those crap job, quote unquote crap jobs really helped me develop career capital. So I said yes to them, even though maybe they weren't the most exciting jobs in the world. <laughs> I'm really glad that you brought that up. Uh, speaking of crap jobs specifically, uh, Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs was on the Art of Manliness podcast, I believe. And he was talking about the uh, the passion mindset. And he's got a little bit different take on it than Cal Newport, who says it's the passion mindset. We've talked about that before in previous episodes, how that's actually a bad approach because it's focusing on what people can do for you instead of what you can do for people. And you're not going to get rewarded for that selfish uh, mindset. Um, and so Mike Rowe, with the whole idea behind Dirty Jobs is that he's going to go and he's going to do these jobs that nobody wants to do. And he's going to show how hard they are. And he used a quote, and I don't know if this is, uh, this is his or if he got it somewhere else, but he said, don't follow your passion, but always take it with you. And basically exactly what you're talking about. Apply it to whatever job you happen to find yourself in Give it everything that you've got, and that is going to lead to something even better. Yeah, totally agree. I like I like the way that he put that. All right, so three times you should probably say yes when the thing is in line with your core values. It's the best thing you can do right now. That's number one. Number two, like Brooks just mentioned, when the thing will lead you to your ideal future and you're developing career capital. Uh, number three, I put when you honestly want to do it <laughs> right. and you honestly have the bandwidth. Okay, <laughs> so this is something that I, I kind of picked up from... Uh, the book Margin by Dr. Richard Swenson. And the whole idea behind that book is that you need to have this margin so that you can say yes to the things that you really want to do. Now, I have a tendency to say yes to all of the things that other people want to do and the things that I want to do, not the things I have to do. Like I'm I'm pretty good about establishing the, the time for my, my morning ritual and taking care of the things that need to get done. But my big issue is that I need to disconnect sometimes and I just need to play. I just need to, uh, I need to fire up the video games once in a while or watch a movie or something like that just to get my brain a break. Uh, and I've noticed that me personally, that, uh, if I, if I don't say yes to those things first, then my day can get easily filled up with all of the other things that need to get done. Yeah. I mean, uh, just to point out another example for you is you, just recently spoke at the MaxDoc conference. So you went to Chicago or somewhere in Illinois and spoke at the MaxDoc conference. And I'm sure there was a whole lot of reasons why maybe that, like you could have said no to that. You know, you've, you're busy in work. You've got a baby about to come. You know, you've got a whole bunch of reasons, I'm sure, other commitments where you could have uh, said, no, nah, I'm not going to do it this year. But you I'm assuming you wanted to do it. So you did. And, and, uh, and it, I'm assuming it was great. So that's an example of sometimes, sometimes we just want to do something and, uh, and that sometimes that can be a good enough reason. Yeah, no, that I'm glad that you brought up that specific example, because I'm very thankful that I have the the job that I have with Asian deficiency, where, where I have the flexibility to say, you know what, I'm going to be gone Thursday and Friday presenting at this conference. Everybody's like, oh, that's awesome. Go Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's it's not necessarily directly attributed to what we do. It's not something that is necessarily sponsored by the company, but because we have that emphasis on personal growth, the things that are important to me essentially are the things that are important to the company. So uh, I really, I was thinking about that the whole time I was there. Uh, that I was really thankful that uh, I, I work for a company that that gives me the flexibility to do that. By the way, it was in Woodstock, Illinois, which is close to Chicago. But for anybody who is familiar with the movie Groundhog Day, that's actually where they shot it. Nice. And they have this little like old town square uh, in the middle of the the city. And we spent a lot of time in that square. They actually have plaques up all over the place. And you can you can go on a walking tour of all the different sites that they shot the different scenes in the movie. So... If you're interested in Groundhog Day, <laughs> it's a fun little place. Nice. Um, all right. So let's talk now about how most people make important decisions. So these are kind of everything we talked about so far is kind of like, how do you say no when somebody wants you to take on an extra project? But there's going to be some more important decisions like what, how do you decide what career that you want to choose or you're offered another job? Should you take it? Should you not? 
And the way that most people make these important decisions is framed in the book Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath is this idea of moral algebra, which was created by Benjamin Franklin, I believe, where you have the list of pros and you have the list of cons and you basically go through and you cross out the things that are weighted, weighted pretty much the same. Uh, and then you look at the list of, of pros and if it's bigger than the list of cons, that's how you make your decision. But there's a bunch of problems associated with this approach. Okay, so there are four villains of decision-making which are outlined in this book, and I'll just kind of read through these, and then we can kind of uh, break these down one by one. Okay, so the four villains are narrow framing, and that's where you're not considering all the options. The second villain is confirmation bias, and that's where you're looking for, some, looking for something to validate what you've pretty much already decided you're going to do or not do. Uh, the third one is short-term emotion that can lead you to taking or making decisions that lead to buyer's remorse, uh, or you, you, you basically aren't happy with the result that you got uh, shortly after you've made it. And the fourth villain of decision-making is overconfidence where we kind of have this feeling that we always make good decisions, or we think that we're better than the average person. And this applies to a lot of different things, not just our decision-making ability. Uh, it also, it has to do with our, how we think we manage our money, how we manage our time. <laughs> I, I read a book called brain chains, I believe, where they talked about how like 97% of people uh, agree that texting and driving is extremely dangerous, but most people think that they are better than the average person. So a bunch of people text and drive, even <laughs> though the statistics show that it's very deadly. And I know you've got some uh, something here you're going to share uh, from a decision matrix on how we can kind of overcome these, and then we'll dive into the uh, the decisive way and on how to combat this. Yeah, um, this is it's really funny. As we were planning out this episode, I, I remembered that years and years ago, uh, I was at a conference and Tan was there as well, and the Asian efficiency team at the time. I was not a member of the Asian efficiency team, but the Asian efficiency team at the time crowded into Tan's hotel room and friend of AE who's been on the podcast before, Charles No, uh, gave us a little presentation on his, on his, the way he makes decisions. And uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but back then I, he did a, a really interesting model where if he's trying to make big decisions on whether he should do something or evaluating different alternatives, basically what he'd do is he'd He'd uh, use the concept of expected value and have a decision matrix. And for each thing that he was deciding, so if he was deciding, you know, X or Y, or I should do it, yes or no, he'd come up with the criteria where he wanted to make, uh, evaluate that decision on. And then for each of these criteria, he'd give a probability of how much that choice, you know, X or Y, yes or no, will meet the criteria. And then you'd figure out a weighted average of that. And whichever one uh, meets the criteria and has the highest score, basically, that's the option he would go with. And I thought that was a really interesting and uh, kind of numerical way to break this stuff down. If you're really, if you really find yourself trapped in these biases, and there's lots of other ones that you mentioned, sometimes it can be helpful to at least evaluate it by numbers. And then of course you can always decide whether you're going to go with that or not. But I thought that was an interesting way to do it. Yeah. I love this idea because the numbers in essence don't lie <laughs> and you, you, you nailed it. You said that these, these four villains of decision-making, these are essentially cognitive biases, which we covered a whole bunch of them, but these are four specific ones when it comes to making an important decision that we need to overcome. And so if you've identified the formula for the expected value and you, and you can trust that formula. Obviously that's the the big variable here is whether sure. your formula is any good, but yeah, <laughs> assuming, yeah. assuming it is then uh, finding those, those numbers that is actually going to lead to much better decision-making because uh, you're going to see things black and white. There's no room for interpretation here. This one's a 70, this one's a 50. So the 70 is better. Like there's no, there's no discussion there, but there's a, there's another, another, uh, framework, I guess, which is uh, presented by uh, Chip and Dan Heath in the book Decisive, which specifically speaks to these four villains of decision-making. So real quickly, again, we'll just run through these. First villain of decision-making is narrow framing. Second one is the confirmation bias. Short or Number three is the short-term emotion. Number four is the overconfidence. So the framework that they have 
developed is called RAP, W-R-A-P. And it stands for the four different points. The first one is widen your horizons. Number two is reality test your assumptions. Number three is attain distance before deciding. And then number four, prepare to be wrong. So let's maybe tackle these one by one. Uh, Starting with this widen your horizons, there's a very important distinction here of the prevention versus the promotion focus. Uh, And the story that they use in the book to illustrate this is a husband and wife who are trying to change the fact that when the the wife gets home, because she works outside the home, when she gets home, she's uh, really stressed. And so the wife is looking for uh, what she can do to eliminate the uh, uh, certain job responsibilities, which contribute to the stress. And the husband is approaching the 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 problem in terms of adding something. So he's he's suggesting, well, why don't you go to the gym on your way home? And that this is a really interesting story because uh, the wife, who's the one in the middle of this this uh, situation, I forget their names, unfortunately, but she didn't she wasn't thinking of it that way. And so uh, it's a very important aspect to widening your horizons is to understand all the different options that are available to you, both by cutting things out and by adding things in. Oh, I love that. That's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to have to try to use this uh, in future conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then there's another thing here called the vanishing options test. Uh, And so there's a couple different pieces to this. uh, But really, if you were to sum it up, Uh, It is to answer the question that if you can't do what you are considering right now, what other options are available to you? Because many people have a loss aversion bias, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, which colors the situation. If you completely remove the thing that you are in right now, the situation that you're in right now, you've, if you completely remove that from the equation, then you've essentially neutered the, the uh, loss aversion bias. Like it's, it has no impact. It has no, no pull anymore. And so when you do that, you can see some of the other options that are available. And the thing is, you don't need a ton of options to improve the quality of your decisions. You only need a couple of options. Yeah. In fact, in fact, having too many options uh, can be a problem because then you're in that paradox of choice situation. Yep, absolutely. Now you have uh, something in here about a recent example of this, it sounds like. Well, the example I had was... Um, Another, another thing that you mentioned, which is one of the basic ways and good ways to generate new options is to find someone else who's already solved your problem. Uh, and I, I kind of laughed when I read that because I, just a few days ago, I, I had this exact scenario where uh, we were in our operations meeting here at Asian Efficiency and uh, we're talking about doing something. And, uh, and so I said, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go. <laughs> Actually, while we were talking, I bought a couple books and I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go through this book and I'm going to figure out the metrics and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, uh, Tan said, you know, very nicely, like, yep, you definitely could do all that. Uh, and that, that's great. Or you could, another way to approach it is you could just go on say clarity.fm, find an expert, uh, who's already solved these problems, uh, and just see, <laughs> just see how they've done it. And I was like, yeah, that probably should have been my first step. And then, then go to the books. But this gets into, uh, you know, stuff we've talked about on the podcast before with the Colby score and stuff like that. Some people are just like myself are just fact finders where you want to try and figure it out yourself, but often that is not the most uh, efficient or effective choice. Yeah. uh, I'm glad that you brought that up because Clarity is a phenomenal service. Definitely a big plug for Clarity. And and I think for a lot of people who aren't high fact finders, Clarity is perfect because what you can do is you don't have to go read all of the books to understand all the different options. You can call an expert and they can give you a couple of different options very quickly, you've now narrowed the the field and all of your options that you have to choose from are good ones. And that ability to consider more than one option at once, that is actually called multi-tracking, not to be confused with multitasking, which is actually impossible. But that's another another topic for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's the first part of RAP, which is widen your horizons. So the second part here is to reality test your assumptions. And so, uh, and this is where it'd be interesting to to uh, talk to to Charles and find out how exactly he evaluates the the criteria and the formula that he creates. Uh, but one of the things that Chip and Dan Heath talk about is this concept of ooching, which I love. 
So Uching is basically constructing small experiments to test your hypothesis. So if you are saying that this thing is really important to me, you're going you're gonna to create a small test to see if you really do derive the value that you think you're going to get from that thing. And then uh, once you've constructed that test, you can, you can kind of reevaluate. And uh, reality testing your assumption means that you're, you're ooching like this over and over and over again. Yeah, that's a great test because I just bought an instant pot and I bought it and I actually have no idea how or what I'm going to use it for. So I should have, uh, I should have thought of this, uh, and had, uh, maybe some ideas, small ideas of, of what I'm going to do with this instant pot once I bought it. So that's a, that's a little example. <laughs> now, a negative example of Uching I could say is that, uh, we talk very highly of the Bose QC 35 headphones at Asian efficiency and, I heard Tan talk about how great they were. I thought they were overpriced. And so I bought noise canceling headphones first in the $50 range, then in the $80 range, then in the $120 range, then in the $200 range, <laughs> then $250. And then finally bought the QC 35s at $350. So I spent <laughs> a ton more money than I really needed to. If I, if I would have just invested in the headphones in the first place, that's not really a direct comparison to making a life-altering decision, but uh, <laughs> that's a funny <laughs> example of, of ooching in the wrong way, I guess. There you go. <laughs> All right, now this next section, I actually have this in the wrong place. That's uh, the, the third part here is attain distance before deciding, and that's where this 10-10-10 rule comes in. Uh, attain distance before deciding, that's the third part uh, of rap, and this is something that we probably all know. I would say probably everybody who listens to this podcast knows that they should not make really important decisions off the cuff, and that uh, you should sleep on the email before you send it, and things like that. But the statistics show that we don't. <laughs> Uh, but if you want to make better decisions, one thing that you could do is that you could create this space. You could create this time and don't decide right away. You should actually sleep on it before you make those important decisions. Yeah, I, this is something I'm trying to uh, trying to teach my kids as well, because a lot of times uh, somehow they get all this money from their grandparents or whatever, and, and then they want to buy something. And, you know, I, I try to enforce a just think about it and then we'll we'll talk about it tomorrow because um it this is not just limited to kids but it's definitely something that a lot of them uh suffer from is you you see something you really really want it this is why Amazon Prime for example even though I love it is so dangerous because you you know one click and something can be delivered the same day or a few days later uh, so that's, you really have to, or at least I, by you, I mean me, really have to force yourself, uh, to, to give that time to make the decision. And this is just a small, this is a small one with purchasing, but nowadays everything can happen so quickly and we can have basically anything we want at any time. You can make some pretty big decisions instantly, uh, but it's not usually the right choice. Yeah, that very good point. And that actually leads into loss aversion. So we'll come back to the 10, 10, 10 rule in just a second. But uh, the Amazon thing specifically, uh, loss aversion is a cognitive bias where your loss is where if you have something and you lose it, that's more painful than than the gain. Now, how does this apply to Amazon? Uh, it is those flash sales, those deals that you see where you feel like you have to buy now or you're going to lose out on that deal. That is an example of loss aversion and distance allows you to overcome this. If you just were to have a blanket rule that says, I'm not going to spend over a hundred dollars unless I talk to my wife about it first, then you're not, you're not tempted by those, uh, by those cognitive biases. So it can actually prevent impulse purchases, but where this is really important, like you said, is not necessarily the buying decisions, but it's the life altering decisions. That's where the 10, 10, 10 rule comes in. I really, really like this. So the 10, 10, 10 rule is basically asking yourself how you're going to feel about this purchase or this decision, okay? 10 minutes from now, 10 months from now, or 10 years from now. Now, this can specifically be applied to purchases because purchases, things that we buy, we buy them because we think that they are going to make us happy. We know that it'll make us happy for a short time, and then as time goes on, uh, those things actually do not make us happy. They actually make us unhappy sometimes because we have to maintain them. Like a car, for example, if you bought a really nice car, it's it's great, 
uh, at first, but then when you got to take it into the shop and you got to pay a thousand dollars to get some small thing fixed, <laughs> uh, then that, then you're starting to, to think, oh, that maybe that wasn't such a great decision. So how do I feel about this 10 minutes from now, 10 months from now, and then 10 years from now? Yeah, that's great. And yeah, on, on loss aversion, uh, I just finished this biography of Warren Buffett. And one of the things he talks about is he has this example that he, he talks about sometimes called the 98th floor. And basically his idea is if you, if you go from the first floor to the hundredth floor of a building, and that this is say where your office is, and then you, your office goes down to the 98th floor, you'll feel worse than if you had just gone from the first to the second. So even though, even though you've, uh, you've had something and you, and you'll, you lose it, even you have to, we have to keep in mind that, you know, we're still way up high, but it, it's that loss of urgency is killer. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we've covered, uh, widen your horizons, reality test your assumptions. Number three was attain distance before deciding. The fourth one is, and probably my favorite is prepare to be wrong. So this is overcoming the cognitive bias that I always make good decisions. I always see things correctly. No, no, you don't. <laughs> uh, one of the things that you can use to, to help guide you, I guess, is to define and enshrine. That's how Chip and Dan Heath uh, define it. Define and enshrine your core principles or core values to guide your decisions. So what this does is this allows you to weigh the decision that you're about to make versus those core values. And you can very easily say, oh yeah, I was wrong because I forgot about X. If you don't have that gold standard that you're measuring things against, that's where you can get into the gray area and where you can justify things. Well, this is a special circumstance. Well, this thing is on sale today. But if you have those core values and it's black and white and you really do believe that everything that we do must be filtered against these core values, if it's not in line, then it's not in line. You can't shoehorn that in there. Uh, and so one of the things that you can, you can do to help you understand this stuff is the whole mission to Mars exercise, which Tan has talked about in a previous episode. And really, this is something that we've done at Asian Deficiency to define our own core values. If you were to send someone to an alien planet and they were going to explain everything about your company, your family, your organization, even you personally, like what are the things that they are going to, to say? That's what the whole mission to Mars exercise is in a nutshell. Yeah. And this is, like you said, this is something we do uh, a lot at agent efficiency. I don't think a lot of us do it as well in our personal lives, but there's really no reason why not. And we, you know, there's a lot of information on the agent efficiency blog about your core values. Uh, and, and that can really help you evaluate these decisions. Um, and if you make a decision and it doesn't, and it, it wasn't in line with that, you know, that's okay, but at least have it be a conscious decision that you're, you're going to do that. Maybe it's in one of the three categories, uh, that we talked about, but at least, at least you kind of, you want to always be evaluating things against that. Yeah, I think money is maybe or financial the financial arena is the area where this is best illustrated because you can't do both things. You you have to you have to choose the one that is in line with your core values or the one that is not in line with your core values. And you don't have to have formal core values for how you spend your money, but you could say that what's important to me are experiences or trips. You know, I want to go to whatever country, I want to go to a concert with my friends, whatever. You have to save money for those things. If you don't prioritize those things, what will happen is you will buy the things in your Amazon cart, like the people in Slack are talking about. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll say, oh, sorry, I can't go on that experience. And so I think that uh, that these, these core, core principles maybe is a, a better, more broader, more general term. Uh, you know, where it's, these are the set of rules that I'm going to live my life by. And then the decisions that I make, whether it's purchasing something from Amazon or making a decision about a different job, is it in line with the things that I say are actually important to me? Yep, for sure. Uh, there's two other things in here, which I just really like the idea of this. And this can help you kind of play through this whole process in your head. And that is the pre-mortem and the pre-parade. Okay. So most people have probably heard of a post-mortem, which is actually a medical term where you figure out why somebody died. But post-mortem in the business world typically is after the project is over, you figure out what made it successful, what made it unsuccessful. 
while pre-mortem is doing that same process, but doing it at the beginning. It imagines the future death of a project and it asks what potentially could have killed this. And this is really interesting. I actually did this recently with an outreach team at our, our church. There's eight different people on this outreach team. We're planning this big outreach and uh, we tend to view the event as going off without a hitch. So it was kind of awkward in the meeting when I asked them, okay, so this sounds great, but what could cause this to fail? And everybody just sits there and they're looking around. And after a little while, people start popping off ideas like, well, you know, the weather could be bad or this could happen or that could happen. And that's important because if you can identify those things, then you can plan around those things and you can kind of compensate them for them before they even have a chance to impact your project. Yeah, this is something that I think especially happens with partnerships too is people people think okay i'm uh you know i work really well with this person we're going to start a business together so they they do that and then but they don't really stop to think okay how is this going to happen if it needs to break up and that happens all the time i actually just it i'm really glad you brought up premortem because i just finished uh, the book uh the art of thinking clearly by rolf dobelli and he brought up premortems as well as a way to cut through a lot of these cognitive biases. And it's uh, the way he puts it is imagine it's a year from today and we follow the plan to the letter. So we've done everything that we said we were going to do. Uh, you know, we did awesome planning. It, we did everything right, but the result is a disaster. Take five to 10 minutes to write about this disaster. And this can, like you said, this can really help cut through a lot of these uh, biases and planning fallacies, uh, because you're, you're thinking of the end first. Yep. Begin with the, the end in mind, <laughs> but in the opposite of this is the pre parade. So this is kind of like the pre-mortem, but instead of assuming failure, you're assuming success. This is really important for decision-making because what this does is it establishes both the floor and the ceiling of a potential decision. So if you're trying to decide, for example, whether to take that that other job, it's important to think about assuming I take this job and everything goes wrong, what does that look like? And assuming I take this job and everything goes right, what does that look like? And you may find that in compared to your your current situation, the floor is a little bit lower, but the pre-mortem, you know, there's there's potential for a for the for your situation to be a little bit worse, but there's also a ton of potential for things to be a whole lot better. Okay. That's a fairly easy decision to make Then There's a whole lot of upside there. So in that case, maybe you do want to take that job. You want to take that chance, but uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes into that decision, including other cognitive biases. So it's not just that simple, but that's the principle. <laughs> right. And sometimes, sometimes we want to be prepared for success because a lot of times uh, being successful carries a lot of other challenges with it, you know, as far as like, let's say you're having a web-based business or something or any type of business and all of a sudden it's successful. How do you handle, how do you handle that, the scaling of that? Or let's say that you do such a good job with all the other things we've been talking about and you get a, uh, an awesome promotion, which is great, but there, there's going to be a lot of changes in the, the way that your job is, that your life is, that you may not think about right off the bat. So you want to think about those successes as well and know how to handle them. Yeah, definitely. All right. So that's the decision-making framework from the book Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath, which is wrap. Uh, just real quickly to, to recap that, widen your horizons, reality test your assumptions, attain distance before deciding, prepare to be wrong. Last thing that I'll add here, and really I think this applies to the entire discussion, both the power of a positive no in terms of respecting your boundaries while still accommodating other people, but also by widening your options and the things that are available to you is this quote from, from the book. I believe this is the book Decisive by Steve Cole. It says, any time in life that you're tempted to think, should I do this or that? Instead, ask yourself, is there a way I can do this and that? It's surprisingly frequent that it's feasible to do both things. And obviously, again, this, this takes into account uh, all of the different core beliefs or core values that you have. Uh, both of those things do have to be in line, but uh, widening those horizons, reality testing those assumptions, uh, that is a very important part of achieving your ideal future. Any closing thoughts, Brooks? 
no, just that we've, we do, we have talked a lot about no, but I really am glad that saying no, but I'm glad that you ended with that quote because, you know, I got to give a shout out to the, to the yes side as well. There, there, there can be times when, when yes is the right answer too. So don't uh, have no as your default. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. That's, it's not as easy as just saying, I need to say no more. Uh, That's why I started by saying people say yes to things that they shouldn't be doing. It's not that people say yes too much. It's that they say yes to the the wrong things. Um, Because my path, which led me to Asian efficiency, was one where I was was embracing the the quote-unquote side hustle. You know, I was doing this stuff for AE before work, after work. And I know, Brooks, you've shared your story is, is very similar. So if you were just looking at looking at it through the lens of I'm already really busy, I got to figure out what to say no to, then neither of us would be here today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the topic for this episode came from the Dojo, our online productivity community. And if you want to help guide the direction of the productivity show and add to the discussion yourself, then the Dojo is the place to do that. The Dojo is also the place to connect with like-minded achievers who can help inspire you and hold you accountable to reaching your goals. The Dojo is currently closed to the public, but if you go to theproductivityshow.com slash dojo, you can not only get access to the community, but also the private video training library with new video modules added every single month, like Brandon's awesome journaling module that we talked about in the last episode. And you can also get access to the private Slack team where you will get direct access to the Asian efficiency team. And the best part is that you can get all of this for just $1 for the first month. After that, it's just $29 a month and you can cancel at any time. With membership to the dojo, you also get exclusive software discounts on some of our favorite productivity apps like BusyCal, Hazel, and Text Expander. So if you're excited about the idea of connecting with other super smart and successful people, then check out the dojo today by going to theproductivityshow.com slash dojo. Again, that URL is theproductivityshow.com slash dojo. You can find links to everything that Brooks and I discussed today in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 155. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next Productive Monday.